The following message is copyrighted by Westminster Theological Seminary. Duplication, distribution, or other use of all or any part of this message is not permitted without prior written consent. Please direct your inquiries to communications at wts.edu. For all other information, please visit the main website at www.wts.edu. And all of a sudden, assuming that my collation was accurate and that my typing into the computer was accurate and so on, uh, you get you know, very quick sorting which is almost infallible, and you get a much better idea of what really is going on in the manuscripts. And now, instead of using some very general kinds of canons of criticism, the shorter reading is better, which in a general sense is true, but you've got to qualify it, because uh, the shorter reading is better in certain kinds of uh, textual variations, and also for certain manuscripts, it's true to a larger extent than it is for other manuscripts. Now, if, I don't know if you brought this thing that I gave you last week, but um, this is a more limited one, uh, but I, I did do a, and I couldn't find it, you know, my office is a terrible mess. I had Mr. Mrs. O'Brien in my office by mistake. I didn't mean to take them in. <laughs> She started taking pictures, and uh, then I said, well, let's go look at the rare book room. And she said, oh, I thought we were in the rare book room. Um, anyway, you can easily see, for example, under omissions, uh, in, in, this is on page 24, that uh, under P46, you have 33 omissions, but under Alexandrinus only four. Sinecus and Vaticanus take a, a, you have a middle range there. Now see, that's a very significant kind of figure. Uh, it supports uh, the, the views of some who say that in the early papyri, omissions are more common than in the later documents, but even that has to be further refined. It isn't just that it's that in, in particular situations, because as you can see, uh, the vast majority of the missions are in the line that says FU, function words. That those are the little words like conjunctions and articles and, and prepositions that can be missed more easily. And then when the scribe maybe goes back to it, it, you know, it, it slips much more uh, readily than if you have a, a significant, you know, uh, semantically full word, you have uh, quite a few nouns, and not, not that many, and no verbs whatsoever. Now that's a little bit of information that is very, very suggestive and, and again can help. And, and now when I show you this kind of stuff, and, and again if I have, I'll try to look for that other chart and, and give it to you in case you want it, but when you, when you see the, um, uh, the complexity of the data, you're going to become very skeptical every time you go to a commentary and the commentator tells you, well, you know, this uh, is probably better reading because scribes tended to do this or the other and um, you're not, not, not so sure whether that is the case for the particular type of textual variation he's talking about. Okay. 
Now let me give you a couple of examples of how, uh, how this works out in, uh, in practice. If, um, and I think that I, I used this example briefly in the, uh, in the little article, but in Galatians chapter 4, Verse 18, Galatians 4.18, where Paul says, Kalon de zeilustai en kalo pantote, for it is good to be zealed for, it's a passive infinitive here, uh, in, in, in what is good always. It's kind of a difficult verse for a variety of reasons, but let's not worry about that. Now, if you have the UBS text, uh, I don't think you have any um, textual variation there, but the Nestle Allen uh, tells you that, um, sure, you have Zeilustai uh, on the text, but there's this variation, Zeiluste, which uh, is found in Sinaiticus Vaticanus, Codex 33, remember that's the queen of the minuscules, the cursives, a few others, and uh, in, uh, in the Latin tradition as well. Uh, now this would be not, uh, but it is good to be zealed after, rather it is good for you to be zealous or something like that. Now, I would want to argue that it is totally misleading for the Nestle Allen text. They have to do it. They really have no, no simple way of, of avoiding this problem if they want to be thorough. But it is totally misleading for them to include Codex Sinaiticus here as presumably supporting this particular reading. I mean, anybody looking at wow, Sinaiticus and Vaticanus together support this one. This must be important. It is not important as in terms of a claim for this being the original. Why? Because my own uh, collation of Codex Sinaiticus shows that one of the most common spelling, quote, mistakes in Codex Sinaiticus is precisely the interchange between the epsilon and the I diphthong, because the I diphthong, alpha iota, came to be pronounced the same as the epsilon, as it is today in, in modern Greek. And it was already the case by the fourth century, and even earlier. And this particular scribe, had that particular problem. In fact, you just go back to, um, I think it's in verse 12, Ginnisthe. And he spells that Ginnisthai. And you know that's nonsense there. Uh, so to, to put Sinaiticus in the apparatus to give it a weight that it ought not to have. All right. You're going to uh, see another uh, exegetical payoff, if you will, with regard to this kind of study when you read the first chapter, now the second chapter of my thing on Pauline exegesis, not for next, wait a second, yeah, two weeks time. There is a combination. If you have manuscripts, I mean, if you have a variation that is supported by this combination, That's a very impressive list of manuscripts anyway to be put together. Um, 
1739, uh, you may recall, is the, although it is a medieval manuscript, it was uh, clearly copied from a fourth century manuscript. The, uh, the scribe gives you that information. And it has a, uh, an unusually fine uh, text. But uh, when I looked at the evidence that I had collated, I found that as strong as that is, you don't want to put too much uh, credence into that combination if the variant they support is the omission of a function word. So you're dealing with a textual variation this, that has to do with a conjunction, an article, whatever. And if these manuscripts omit, uh, just because it's a great group, don't think it's necessarily all that uh, significant because all these manuscripts have a tendency to omit just that kind of word. Um, again, the combination of Alexandrinus Ephraimi, 33, plus the majority text, uh, is exceedingly weighty for that kind of variant. In, in, in that case, it is helpful. Um, a and D are weak if you're dealing with the addition of a noun. Um, Papyrus 46, D and C are, are weak if you're dealing with a grammatical kind of variant and so on. Uh, now, again, these, these are not, you know, absolute canons of any sort. All I'm saying is that if, if one does not have that kind of information, it is possible to uh, make a judgment that is only partially informed. I did want to say something else with regard to textual uh, questions. And um, you could, for, for example, take the whole letter to the Galatians and try to get a sense on how many variations are there. Now, how do you do that? Well, you can't do it for every manuscript, but you can do it working off the Greek text available to you. Now, if you check the UBS text, now this would be the third edition. They are few changes in the fourth. Uh, it gives you 22 places in the whole of Galatians where there are variants. 22 places. Remember, the criterion uh, used by the UBS was, they're doing this primarily for translators, so if a variant, first of all, is weighty in the sense that it is supported by significant uh, textual witnesses, and secondly, it makes a difference in the translation, then they would choose. But 22 variants is very, very uh, uh, limited. If you count the ones in Nestle Island, the 26th edition, I haven't done it for the 27th, uh, there are about 98 you know, entries or lemmas or whatever. Of those 98, in those 98, you end up with about 140 variants because sometimes a lemma may have two different, or two or three or four different variations, depending on the manuscripts. So it comes to about 142 variants altogether. 31 omissions, 20 additions, 11 transpositions, 35 morphologi morphological changes, and 45 alterations, most of them substitutions of one sort or another. Now these statistics uh, are pretty raw, and uh, they don't really say a great deal, but maybe you get a sense of, of you know, what are 
what are the proportions in terms of, uh, of variations that you find. More helpful, I think, is an approach where you might take the, the uh, you know, so-called standard text nowadays and compare it with um, other earlier texts. Now, the thing that comes to mind immediately would be the Textus Receptus. Now, let me give you some um, interesting um, stats here with a couple of examples. First of all, if you compare the Westcott Hort text, you know, which they produced in the late 19th century, with the Textus Receptus, and you look carefully to see how many differences there are in the two texts, you end up with 76, 76 differences in the Epistle to the Galatians alone between Westcott and Hort and the Textus Receptus. More than 20 of them are now omissions. In other words, um, the Textus Receptus omits at 20 places where the Texas, the Westcott and Hort omits where the Texas Receptus has something. Okay. Uh, for example, in chapter 1, verse 10, chapter 1, verse 10, this must be, yeah, uh, after the middle of the uh, verse, after the verb areskane, you have a eti anthropois ereskon. A eti anthropois ereskon. If you look at the uh, footnote, uh, actually the T already tells you there's going to be an, an addition here. Well, it's the addition of the conjunction gar, which you find in Codex D, and then in the majority text and the Syriac. So this is an example of what I was talking about, that when you compare the Texas Receptus or the majority text, it has gar, the Westcott Hortex omits the gar. There are about 20 places of that sort, more than 20, where when you compare Westcott and Hort with, it, with TR, the Westcott and Hortex omits. Now, if you think, as I think is probably true, that the Westcott and Hort is a closer approximation to the original, then your conclusion is that the Texas Receptus reflects an addition you see, in the course of the transmission. Um, another important example is in chapter 3, verse 1. This is much more significant, and um, it is uh, suggestive of other features of the Texas Receptus. Uh, o uh, foolish Galatians, these who and who bewitched you, then again you have that little sign, the T, uh, that's supposed to be, well, there's an addition coming. Go down to the apparatus, and the addition is thea me pethestai, so, which would be then, who bewitch you that you should not obey the truth. Now, that's a whole phrase there. As it turns out, that phrase is in chapter 5, verse 7. And it is probably a harmonistic addition. And you know how that sort of thing would have happened very easily. Here's a pastor or somebody preparing his sermon. And he's in chapter 3, you know, and uh, he's been reading the rest of Galatians. And, uh, hey, let me remind myself that 
part. It's talking about obey what, you know, what was the context of this, or I mean, or rather, bewitched in what way? What, what, oh, well, there's this other, well, you know, he had a cross-reference system or something. And so he writes it in the margin to remind himself that this is the sort of thing that Paul, Paul probably has in mind. And then the next fellow that comes along is making a copy of that manuscript. He says, well, I guess that belongs here, so just in case, I better put it in there. Anyway, uh, that's very typical of the Textus Receptus. Then, uh, so there are about 20 or so, more than 20 of these kinds of things. Then, uh, however, the Westcott and Hort text added uh, about eight things that the Textus Receptus didn't have. For instance, in chapter 2, verse 16, uh, you see there a dotes de hoti, and the de is in brackets. Well, that de was not in the Textus Receptus. It was then added by Westcott and Hort on the authority of um, can see down there, Papyrus 46, Alex, well, they didn't have Papyrus 46, Alexandrinus, uh, and a few others. No, excuse me, um, that's not correct. Um, see, this is one of the misleading things about, about the Nestle, about, about using brackets in the text. They are telling you now, uh, it is omitted, the omission of the is Papyrus 46, Alexandrinus, D, and so on. What we have in the text, they say, is supported by, by Sinaiticus, Vaticanus, C, D, etc. They put it in brackets, which is the way of saying there is so much important support for it that we didn't want to take it out, but we don't really think it belongs there. And so we put brackets around it. So what's happening is that the Nestlean text is added it back to the text, even they, though they don't really think it belongs there, because there's such a strong support for it. Okay. Then uh, there are about 16 substitutions. One of them is in chapter 1, verse 11, uh, where your text has norizo gar who mean, but the Texas receptors had norizo de. Uh, they are about 15 transpositions, as such as the one in chapter 1, verse 3. And uh, lots of grammatical ones, for example, in, in verse uh, 8. Uh, this has to do with the uh, form of the verb euangelizetai. When you look at the, that's the Westcott and Hort text over against the Texas Receptus. When you look at the net, excuse me, at the UBS Nestle Allen text, they returned to the Texas Receptus in about four out of the 76 times. But then they came up with four new changes. So it you know, came to nothing. Now, 76 sounds like a lot. But there are a couple of uh, qualifications here that you need to keep in mind. First of all, when you look at the kinds of changes that we're talking about, it is pretty evident that the most of them really do not affect the meaning of the text. Uh, some of them do affect it if you're interested in, a, in, a, in some sort of subtle distinction. Even the ones that are substantive do not really affect the message of what, of what the text is saying. I mean, 
Take the line, chapter 3, verse 1. Who has bewitched you so that you may not obey the truth? Now, that's pretty substantive. But as a matter of fact, if you think about it, your understanding of that whole paragraph isn't going to change uh, on the basis of whether or not you have that, uh, that uh, clause there. There are exceedingly few of these 76 that really, really change the meaning. One of them would be the, the, the word murders in chapter 5 where you have the list of the works of the flesh. Texas Receptus has the word phonoi as one of the, these things, but not the, uh, the, the newer text. That would be a, a obviously, that changes the, the, the text significantly. Uh, but that's quite rare. The other factor that you want to keep in mind is you need to think of the proportions here. 76 variations over against how many hundreds of words in the text. And when you look at it that way, it turns out that the difference between Nestle Island or the UBS text and the Texas Receptus is only about 3% of the text. So there's 97% agreement, 97% agreement between the, uh, the modern standard text and the uh, Texas Receptus. And that's something that I think needs to uh, always be kept in, in some kind of perspective. Well, um, you know, at the end of this uh, little thing, and on the basis of, you know, ridiculously meager data, I mean, I, who would want to draw any conclusions from only four manuscripts and only one letter? But I found it, if not disturbing, at least intriguing, that the list of departures, that is variations between the standard text and these manuscripts. And then I, I started looking for when, when do they agree on these differences that I could come up with very little of significance. I mean, you would have, ex everybody knows that Papyrus 46, Vaticanus, and Alexandrinus are all Alexandrian texts. Why is it that I found only um, And, and the Alexandrinus as well, two agreements between 46, Papyrus 46, Sinaiticus, and Alexandrinus, only one agreement between two other combinations, and zero agreements in one of the combinations, and in no case did all four manuscripts, 46, Alexandrinus, uh, Sinaiticus, Vaticanus, and Alexandrinus, agreed on one of these changes. Now, the answer that I'm sure somebody would give, well, of course not, because the UBS text is already heavily Alexandrian in its, I mean, it, it, it uh, uh, gives a lot of weight to the Alexandrian tradition. <coughs> and some people argue <coughs> that, generally speaking, when you, when you pick this up, you're just picking the Egyptian text. I think that's a little unfair, but there's enough truth in it. And then somebody would say, well, you see, that's why you don't find many agreements uh, it, with, with respect to these differences because most of those agreements are already incorporated into the text itself so they don't show up when you collate a manuscript against it. Well, yes, but that still not, doesn't answer everything. And let me explain what I mean by that. Let's suppose that um, you were living in the fourth or the fifth century 
and you did not have the Texas receptors available to you, uh, all you had were a series of manuscripts, including these four, how do you determine whether manuscripts have some kind of genetic relationship? Well, by looking at patterns of agreements. But the patterns of agreements are most, uh, most frequently significant when you're dealing with errors, not when you're dealing with what is probably the, the original text, because then if they're found in the original text, then they're genetically related only in the sense that they go back to the original, not related among each other, you see. Uh, it's like if, uh, if I give an exam and um, I, I suspect you know, some people have cheated or copied from one another, the easiest way to prove that, in fact, in some ways, the only way to prove it is if, if there's commonality in the errors, not in the right answers. But if there, you see a pattern, they miss the same things. That's very curious. Um, and uh, you know, there's usually 99% uh, probability that that's not an accident. So uh, what I'm saying is if you have been in the fifth century and then you had looked for errors among these manuscripts and see where the errors were common so they might show some kind of genetic connection, at least on the base of Galatians, you'd have nothing really to go on. Now I haven't sorted that out completely. I think there are probably some answers to it, but uh, uh, that's uh, about all I can tell you on the basis of my information. However, there's no question about the fact that when now you compare these things with the majority text, then you do see certain patterns, uh, very significant patterns, that at least help you distinguish Alexandrian from Texas Receptus. And also, uh, you would see some significant patterns with, uh, in, with Codex D and a few other things, uh, which I didn't include Codex D in this particular thing. I have later, but, I, but for the later work, I have not tried to do some of this kind of genealogy. And I'll tell you why. Um, people who are really experts in this field of um, trying to make determinations with regard to genealogical relationships have found that the way you do that is not by taking everything, which is what I was doing. I was doing an exhaustive kind of thing. But you only pay attention to variants that are significant for showing up the differences. And there's a way of determining those once you have become familiar with the textual tradition. Uh, so that, the, for example, the people at Munster, what they did, spent a lot of time and research identifying 1,000 passages throughout the New Testament that they felt really, you could take any manuscript and look not, not at the whole New Testament, but look only because, I mean, you, you realize how many verses and how many very, you know, it's impossible. But there are 1,000 passages, and if you look, take any manuscript, you look at those 1,000 passages, you can really say something meaningful about how, what is the textual shape of that manuscript over against others. See? And I didn't do that, and uh, it, it's not what I'm primarily interested in doing anyway. But, um, but there's still you know, some questions that, that need to be answered with regard to that sort of thing. I begin by trying to make a distinction with regard to um, the way in which people normally approach 
the question of the history of interpretation. Uh, there's even a uh, section in uh, the annual meetings of the Society of Biblical Literature called the History of Exegesis Group. And what that normally means, what it normally means is that someone takes either an interesting passage in the Bible and, um, and sees what different uh, writers throughout the centuries have said about it. And uh, what you're looking for here is uh, entertaining uh, material as much as possible. You, you know, you, it's very easy to find amusing examples of exegetical um, work. Or if you don't take a particular passage and carry it through, you might focus on individual or on some kind of theme. But almost always, almost always, what's in view is uh, what have people uh, thought about a passage? What have they done with it? Uh, how has a passage influenced a certain kinds of um, uh, either theological discussions or practical kinds of issues? You do have uh, frequently scholars, uh, church historians, and others concerned about the, uh, the use of scripture in the formulation of doctrine in one way or another. Now, all these things are perfectly legitimate. But there's another side of it which is not as frequently looked at. It is, you know, there are a number of people who uh, are interested in that as well. But um, an interest in the way in which exegesis is done, not in what, what is the result of the exegetical process you know, for a particular individual or a group, but the rather how are exegetical principles being uh, developed consciously or unconsciously? How, are, how is the question of method uh, being affected by the way in which uh, scholars uh, throughout the centuries have uh, used the text? If you read uh, Longenecker's discussion of um, the history of interpretation, which, as you will recall, he simply uh, <clears throat> he entitles it The Impact of Galatians on Christian Thought and Action. So right there, you can see that um, he's not thinking about the, the, this issue of uh, the development of method so much. But he's just trying to uh, review the way in which Galatians has uh, influenced, uh, you know, very very important people in the history of the church. Um, and you know, he comes up with interesting material, uh, which um, uh, is not. I'm not suggesting that it is irrelevant to the the other question of uh, how. What do we learn with regard to biblical interpretation from these kinds of details and, and the kind of information that uh, Longenecker uh, focuses on? Uh, nevertheless, he's not really asking the question that I am interested in in this particular uh, chapter. Now, I, I do give an example of, of the sort of thing that is usually done is an exceedingly interesting historical question, and it does have implications for the way in which we might go ahead and, and interpret Galatians 2, 11 through 14, uh, namely the conflict between uh, Jerome and Augustine regarding uh, that incident, 
uh, already Chrysostom, and I, I'm quite sure Chrysostom wouldn't have been the one who came up with this, but if you read his commentary, you do find that he already has apparently some difficulties dealing with this problem. How, you know, how can Paul um, publicly chastise Peter? And uh, maybe some idealized understanding of, of the apostolic office, uh, at, or the apostolic persons, I should say, uh, made him a little... Um, hesitant to, uh, to take that the way it appears to be described. And so he comes, he not comes, comes up, but he uses this notion that what it was really taking place in Antioch, it was really like an object lesson. You know, Peter and Paul uh, said, hey, when we go out there, <laughs> I want you to withdraw from the Gentiles. And then this will give me an opportunity to make a certain point and so on. And uh, <coughs> it's amazing how, uh, how influential that view was in the early church. And Augustine, uh, quite uh, rightly, had serious problems with it. And he gets into this uh, uh, debate with, with Jerome. And uh, Jerome had uh, a knack for writing in an intimidating fashion. And Augustine was quite aware of, of the fact that intellectually, uh, particularly with regard to technical questions of language and text and so on. Jerome was a giant in, in that day. And uh, Augustine treads lightly, uh, <clears throat> but um, it's, it's fascinating. And uh, <clears throat> even though, <clears throat> and I hope you understand uh, what I'm getting at when I say this, even though you may decide that this particular interpretation of Galatians 2, 11 to 14 <clears throat> is uh, totally... Uh, off the wall. You ought not to infer from that that the discussion in, in the history of the church regarding it or that even the way in which that particular interpretation was formulated and used is irrelevant for understanding of the text. Because how people have used and responded to the text whether we like it or not, has become part of, of the whole context in which we do our interpretation. And um, I'll say a little bit more about that <coughs> as we move on. <coughs> but um, in any case, this is a very interesting example. <coughs> and even this example, you can, you can go through the correspondence and uh, begin to abstract, if you will, certain kinds of principles or certain kinds of methodological moves that um, can be helpful as we try to uh, consciously develop uh, some sort of exegetical method. <clears throat> but that's, that's the point that I'm more interested in. Um, looking at the material and saying, how is the, uh, the actual process of biblical interpretation, and the interpretation of Galatians in particular, how is that taking shape Uh, I point out at the bottom of uh, that first uh, page <clears throat> that um, we ought not to make decisions, our own exegetical decisions, simply on the basis of who was holding what position. Now, nobody with any you know, integrity would admit to doing that. You know, people would never say, well... Um, 
Lightfoot held to this, so that's why I'm holding it. Now that's about as good a reason, actually, as you can come up uh, with, uh, as it were, as it turns out. But uh, nevertheless, uh, <coughs> you're not supposed to say that, <coughs> and you're not supposed to do that. You want to figure out why are people coming to uh, certain conclusions, and. Um, Then, as I mentioned also, is, you know, bottom of, of the first page and into the second page, uh, part of what's going on here <coughs> is that when you read a commentary and this commentator begins to list support for maybe alternate ways of looking at the material. And uh, you remember that, um, well, I don't know when this uh, began to be a, a common and, and frequent um, way of doing exegetical, writing exegetical commentaries, but certainly Meyer, <coughs> in the middle of the 19th century, uh, was one of, of those who, uh, who made that uh, technique particularly popular. And so whenever you face some sort of exegetical problem, some kind of disagreement, you begin to list authors previous authors who support one or the other interpretation. Now, <clears throat> again, I, I don't want to be understood uh, to say that that has no value whatsoever. But um, it, it is problematic for a variety of reasons, particularly if the commentator or, or the people who read the commentary are influenced either by the number of names following a particular interpretation and or by the quality of the names. I mean, you, you may feel, well, I don't just take a majority here. You know, I don't just count, I weigh uh, commentators the way that I weigh and not just count manuscripts. But uh, even that is not quite good enough because you have to have some awareness of what has um, played a role in a particular interpreter's decision to choose uh, uh, one option rather than another. You may have um, commentators A, B, C, and D for interpretation one, and commentators E, F, G, and so on, for uh, interpretation number two. And uh, either because you have more here than here, or because you like uh, these commentators better, for, for whatever reason you have learned to trust them, and so on, uh, you are influenced to go with uh, interpretation number one. But suppose, first of all, incidentally, I, I should say this, you're assuming that whatever commentary you're writing, you're reading, is accurately representing these people. And uh, if you do a little bit of uh, searching around, you may be surprised how frequently uh, that isn't going to work. Uh, maybe th this particular author 
stated things in a somewhat ambiguous way or maybe let's suppose that you're reading Longenecker, not, not to pick on him but anybody. And uh, Longenecker is the one who tells you that B chooses one and maybe either Longenecker has made a mistake here, simply, or he hasn't exactly made a mistake but, but there's some ambiguity in the way in which B expresses matters and that happens all the time when people are being quoted in support of a particular interpretation. Um, I just uh, read a, a review of, um, of this book that uh, Kaiser and I wrote on, on hermeneutics. <coughs> and uh, I'm going to have to write to the reviewer to see if he got a defective copy of, of the book because uh, uh, his understanding of my position on some things is a little peculiar. But um, but it is very easy to do, particularly when you're just reading a commentary and, and uh, the commentator cannot expand on, on the idea, you see. But even if, if uh, the commentator is listed accurately, you still have the problem of uh, the reasons. Maybe this commentator uh, arrived at interpretation one either using a, uh, an argument that you yourself do not accept. Maybe you think that this kind of argumentation is not valid. And now all of a sudden, just because he uh, took that a particular uh, exegetical line doesn't mean that it was done with the very uh, good grounds. Or what sometimes also happens more specifically is that the very qualities that you admire in a commentator are not apparent in a particular, in this particular instance. You may feel that, say, commentator B has a real good uh, sense or balance in the way in which he um, deals with a grammatical issue, let's say. But when you look carefully at, at how he came to number one, you find that he's really being very inconsistent with his own usual uh, principles. Now it might still be true, and, and this is what complicates matters considerably, it might still be true that because B is a very fine exegete anyway, that he has hit upon the better exegetical option simply because of his instincts, his instincts as an exegete, even though his rationale is not very strong. That can always be, be the case. But um, all I'm saying is you ought not to allow a commentator to influence you, at least not significantly, on a particular issue unless you know what that commentator's rationale may be. And of course you cannot do that just by listing and, and, uh, and in fact, uh, even if you went back to the commentary itself, so frequently commentators just tell you what they think. They don't have room, you know, to always give a, a detailed uh, explanation. So um, that's, uh, that's a bit of a problem. Moreover, <clears throat> and this is the main point in the top paragraph of page two, a, a theme that I will come back to again and again, probably ad nauseum, uh, in, in the variety of the issues that we'll be covering throughout the course is that uh, whenever you do this kind of thing, what really is happening is that you're treating commentators in an atomistic fashion. In other words, um, 
each commentator needs to be understood in his context. You have to do an exegesis, in other words, of each commentator. Now, you don't have to go through, a, an, um, particularly if you're dealing with a relatively recent commentator, you, you're part of the same culture, you're reading somebody in the same language, all of these things um, make it unnecessary for you to do many of the steps you would normally have to go through in understanding an, a an ancient text. But there's a sense in which you have to know as much as possible about, about the commentator, Lightfoot or Burton or whoever it may be, and, and try to place his understanding of any particular verse in, within the framework of his, of his total approach to Galatians. And um, that's part of what I'm trying to do here in a very, very superficial way, obviously. In just one chapter, you can, can do that. But at least get a sense for what uh, some of the more prominent uh, scholars have done and uh, what has apparently been the, the dominant uh, motives and, and concerns as they go about doing their work. You notice also at the bottom of page two and then page three, um, a matter which has a broader hermeneutical <coughs> uh, concern. And I'm hoping that maybe the last chapter of this book that I'm writing <coughs> may address that issue more directly. <coughs> has to do with the whole issue of um, what is the role of the reader <coughs> in uh, interpretation. Uh, the point that uh, none of us is able to look at the biblical text from scratch, that uh, there's a host of impressions that we have been bombarded with for uh, many years that have already created a particular, you know, a grid or a particular framework. And we bring that with us uh, to the text. And uh, there is some sense in which, whether we like it or not, uh, each of us contributes to the interpretation just by the fact that we are we are persons uh, with with brains that are not tabula rasas. Let's hope none of us comes to the text with an empty brain. Um, we come with a lot of knowledge and a lot of uh, assumptions and what have you, and. Um, the thing to do is not to ignore that or to fall under the illusion that you can somehow um, you know, jump back. You know, somehow y your head is able to skip back all of these years that you have been listening to sermons and reading the newspaper and, and having talks with your girlfriend or whoever. Um, and uh, somehow be cleared of all of that, you cannot do it. And, and you cannot either skip back to the 19th or the 18th or the 17th century, back to the first century. All of, all of this stuff that's been going on these centuries have, in, even if in a very indirect way, also had a role in what your assumptions are. And um, you don't want to be unduly affected by that, but the, but the best way uh, to avoid that is to be as conscious of the process as possible. And um, again, you know, when you when you come to a uh, to a text, <coughs> um, 
you might as well acknowledge what what your biases are and be really honest with yourself and say I am now about to interpret the text in a way that fits my biases and do it as consciously as you can now hopefully as you're going through the text and you begin to come across certain details in the text that tend to resist the particular bias you're going to have enough sense to say well maybe I should modify my bias at this point and uh, and allow the text to uh, to affect me the way it ought to next thing here uh, authorial intent and contextualization in the second place we need to define carefully the relationship between historical exegesis which focuses on the author's original meaning and the way that later readers understand and therefore contextualize that meaning uh, and this is what you know there's so much conflict about uh, can those two things be uh, separated if not distinguished and um, I uh, point out that at least in, in this context what I think it's important for us to realize is that in the earlier period before the uh, the modern concern with historical exegesis uh, became a very very conscious thing people were greatly motivated by the concern for relevance and uh, as you know one of the distinctives of the historical method is to say forget relevance you will only distort the meaning of the text if you approach it uh, you know uh, with a view toward uh, its relevance you have got to forget that go back to the first century uh, try to purely understand Paul uh, as Paul and uh, only after that exegetical work has been done do you even bother to ask the question all right then what do we what do we do with it um, well it's and then not only is that is that the approach that became dominant uh, beginning with the 18th century but it was taken for granted now that the reason pre-modern exegesis was unreliable is that they didn't know how to distinguish between those two things that, that people uh, you know asked the the question of relevance much too quickly well um, people are now raising questions about that evaluation and uh, we'll have some opportunity to to look at that in a variety of ways the uh, earliest use of Galatians is uh, certainly pragmatic and this immediately creates a problem for us because when people look back at the second and third centuries let's say and they ask the and they do ask the question about the history of exegesis just the way that Longenecker does he starts out with Marcion and he doesn't even tell you by the way that we don't really know what Marcion said all we know is what Tertullian said that Marcion said and uh, with all due respect to Tertullian, uh, we know that he was not the most impartial, casual observer or anything of the sort there. But uh, <coughs> what Marcin does with it, 
what Tertullian does with Galatians, what Irenaeus does with Galatians, and so on. Um, we don't have any material from any of these folks where they sit down and say, okay, let's, uh, let's understand the text and let's go to it verse by verse or whatever method you, you might use. But um, references to Galatians and any comments about the text are always in the context of some problem, some issue. And you see, it's not particularly fair to them to try to abstract some kind of hermeneutical method on the basis of those kinds of uses of the text. Uh, and, moreover, uh, you're not likely to get a very reliable read on exegetical principle and method on the basis of those kinds of, uh, of writings. Now, let's uh, try to think of it in, in terms of our modern context. If you um, sit down to listen to a preacher, you may um, listen to a sermon <coughs> which is not exactly the expository type sermon. Certainly not a verse by verse thing. Uh, it's not even a, um, uh, a, a thematic exposition. By thematic I mean that it's not, it's not following sequentially the text, but it's picking up on certain themes in the, in the paragraph or whatever, or in the verse, uh, and, um, and expounding on it. Um, you may be able, however, even in that kind of a sermon, to see if, if at least the preacher has a main text. You know, sometimes they don't even have a main text to speak of. But if, if the preacher has a main text, you may still be able to uh, determine certain things about the way in which that particular verse or passage is being read and, and you might be able to infer certain things about his method but not a great deal if the preacher does give you an expository uh, sermon he sticks pretty close to the text you're in better shape now to draw certain conclusions but even then <clears throat> something very important happens because even in those cases, the preacher will very likely make use of other passages in illustrating something else or in trying to support a particular view or whatever. And you know perfectly well that the preacher has not had the time to do a thorough exegetical work of every single passage that he happens to refer to in the course of a sermon. And that, again, it would not be particularly fair for you to um, say, well, this is his exegetical method on the basis of those references which are being used uh, not to expound on those particular texts, but they're being used for other purposes, certain kinds of pragmatic, illustrative, polemical purposes, whatever. <clears throat> 